Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. It's October 30th, 2021. Today we will be conducting a guided meditation for the first 10-15 minutes, uh, during which time you're welcome to start posting questions in the YouTube chat. And once the meditation is over, we'll start to ask and answer the questions. Today we have Chris Ulu Rahid. Helping out. So, go ahead and close your eyes. We'll begin with a guided meditation. The guided part of the meditation is limited to providing information and understanding about what you should do. It isn't the case where you can just listen to the sound of my voice and become meditative. You, know, you have to put the work in yourself. The Buddha said, we are just guides. It is you who must walk the path. So start by focusing on your stomach. If you need, you can put your hand on your stomach. But the stomach is a generally useful meditation object. It's always there. The movements are fairly obvious. If you're relaxed, if you're not relaxed, you can try putting your hand on your stomach. And it's part of the body. It's a physical experience. It's unpredictable. So it's not going to lull you into a false sense of security. It's going to challenge you. Not always smooth and comfortable. It's going to require you to have a capacity to adapt. You can't rely on it. This meditation isn't to make you calm. It's to challenge you. If you don't let go, it's going to be just a 15 minutes of stress as you cling to things that aren't susceptible to clinging. So when the stomach does rise, just say to yourself, rising. And when it falls, say falling. Rising. Falling. Not out loud, just in your mind. 
The word is meant to be a reminder to you. A means of keeping the mind focused on the experience itself. To avoid any sort of reaction or judgment. Or distraction that might lead you away from the experience. also to keep you from clinging to the experience and expecting it to be stable, satisfying, or controllable. It will help you cope with the fact that reality is unpredictable. You're strengthening the mind's ability to accept what is happening as it happens and as it happens differently each time. Not obsessed with the past or worried about the future. Just experiencing the present for what it actually is. As you're mindful of the stomach rising and falling, you'll notice there are many other experiences distracting you. Yeah, this, is, this meditation is special in that those aren't a problem. They're only a problem if you're not clearly aware of them as they arise. So there, there's no special need to stay with the stomach. If you get distracted, say, by pain or by thoughts or by emotions, each one of those is a valid object of mindfulness. If you feel pain, focus on the pain and stay, say to yourself, pain, pain. Trying to change your relationship with the pain. Keep, create a healthy relationship that isn't an abusive relationship. I tend to have a rather abusive relationship with pain. We don't like it. We give it power over us. We become subservient to the pain doing anything to appease it, 
A more healthy relationship is to face the pain like an equal. There's the pain, here's the mind. The mind experiences the pain. The pain is experienced by the mind. We say to ourselves, pain, pain. To create this objective, independent awareness of the pain without any clinging, without any obsession with it or attachment to the pain. Same if you feel happy or if you feel calm. Same thing. Don't give them power over you. Don't become dependent on certain types of feelings coming, certain types of feeling not coming. Be independent. See them for what they are. Not trying to get rid of them. Just trying to experience them. Happy, happy, or calm, calm. We have thoughts about the past or future. Focus on the thought. Thoughts are fleeting. Thoughts should be the least of our concern, and yet we make so much out of thoughts. We turn them into the trigger of a gun. A thought is like the trigger of a gun. It's just a piece of metal. Why is a trigger so scary? Not because of the trigger. It's not because of the piece of metal that the trigger is. It's because of the result of pulling that trigger. Our thoughts are loaded. So when we think, we react to our thoughts. We set off a chain reaction of gunpowder that explodes and sends us barreling out into space before we know it we're lost in thought if we can see the thought just as thought we free ourselves from that keep ourselves present trauma from the past is no longer trauma it's just memory just thought Worries about the future. They're just, they're just thoughts. Change doesn't scare us. We free ourselves from the tyranny of our own minds. Say to yourself, thinking, thinking, whatever you think. Quick, take your finger off the trigger. Go back to rising, falling.
and emotions, of course. Liking, disliking, wanting, frustration, fear, boredom, depression, anxiety, doubt. Restlessness, drowsiness, mind states. Any problematic mind states can arise. Problematic, not because they're, excuse me, not because they're actually problems in themselves, but because they become problems. They morph into problems by feeding them by giving them a life of their own, by the habitual increase where our wanting becomes obsession, where our disliking becomes uh, anger and hatred, where, where our worry becomes panic, because we react to our emotions. We're not trying to avoid our emotions. Or we're not trying to suppress our emotions. Get rid of them. We're trying to understand them and see them clearly. We're trying to prevent the snowballing of our emotions through ignorance and delusion and misunderstanding <clears throat> we just try and confront them if you like something say to yourself liking liking disliking say disliking disliking worry fear restlessness drowsiness Say to yourself, worried, worried, afraid, afraid, drowsy, drowsy, restless, restless, confused, doubting. They're not so tough, not so scary. They come and they go. And if you just let them come, let them go there. Without clinging to them, without reacting to them, if you have the strength of mind, to see them for what they are, which is what the noting does. It keeps you honest, keeps you objective. And then there, there's no problem. Okay, so that was 15 minutes. I talked throughout it, so I apologize. I didn't give you any quiet time to meditate. But continue to be mindful. Mindfulness doesn't require silence. You can close your eyes and note the sound of my voice, hearing, hearing. Ask your question and then sit back and listen. At this point, we'd ask that the only thing that goes into the chat box are actual questions, no commentary or discussion or insults, no praise. We don't want praise or blame. If you have praise or blame, you can use the contact form on our website.
We're happy to hear your thoughts. At this point, only questions in the chat box, please. We do have questions, Bhante. I'm not surprised after so many times. I'll begin. Should be, perhaps. You'd think eventually all the questions would be answered. But it's nice to see that we continue to have new people coming and more interest. I think over time we also uh, gain must gain a body of interested participants uh, who, who have learned, hopefully, a fair amount about the Buddha's teaching or my interpretation of the Buddha's teaching what I think is the Buddhist teaching. And uh, so the questions probably become more sophisticated, pointed, well-directed. I think there's a there must be a mix. New people and people who are coming back with specific questions. So these sessions are, seem to be always a great experience. I appreciate it. I think you're right, Bhante. Here's our first. I have issues with anger in my meditation, and I know that if I could just see clearly that people are just acting out of ignorance, I would accept their bad behavior, but I can't see it. Any tips? Um... I, I don't know, actually. I don't know that that, I don't think that that's exactly the solution. It doesn't actually solve the problem to see that a person is acting out of ignorance because that's not the actual reality in front of you. You see, you're confronted with a certain reality. In fact, a complex set of experiences that are rapidly arising and ceasing. And they're being interpreted as a person. And maybe you, you interpret them as a person acting out of ignorance, or maybe you interpret it as a person... Uh, who is just bad, right? And then you get angry at them. But either way, it's conceptual. So the kind of response that includes the conceptualization of the person as a person acting out of ignorance has to be based on, on something real. It, meaning there has to be a quality of mind, a real quality of mind that comes up with that conceptualization. Because simply telling yourself that without that requisite clarity of mind that you're talking about, right? You're talking about seeing clearly. But that sort of seeing clearly has to be focused on reality. 
and the pe people aren't part of that reality. Experiences are part of that reality. Underlying your experience of the person is an experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Uh, I mean, there's a multitude of experiences that you put together as a conceptual person acting out of ignorance. So that's actually where the solution arises. Uh, so the, the solution comes from seeing clearly not a person acting out of ignorance, but a reaction to an experience of a person acting out of ignorance. So when there is the experience of the result of a person's action, if a person says something, a common one would be, hopefully they're not hitting you or something, someone saying things to you, doing things that create frustration, there's a complex experience there. When, when you work out the experience and how the experience or set of experiences trigger anger, like you, mostly we think, most of the anger where it becomes a problem is from thinking. A person does something, says something, and the action doesn't make you angry. I mean, if they hit you, that might make you pretty angry. But even then, usually it's not the pain of being hit that creates suffering. I mean, really, the great amount of suffering. It's the going over again and again what they did, what they said. How dare they? You know? Angry makes us angry. So we we can't we can, we we repeatedly foment the anger in our mind. So through mindfulness, we change that. We say to ourselves, angry, angry, or someone says something, we say hearing, or if we think about it, we say thinking, thinking. We start to break up this chain of reactivity where we make it worse and worse in our mind, exacerbating it repetitive, repeatedly. That's what you want to see. Not that the person is acting out of ignorance, because that will come, that will be like a flower that grows in the fertilized garden of your mind, when your mind is well fertilized and, and well seeded with mindfulness. Yeah. You need the fertilizer, you need the seed, you need the sun, you need the rain, you need all these qualities that we talk about in Buddhism, the, the ethics, you need the focus, you need the mindfulness and wisdom will arise. And when all of that is there, the things will flower, all these conceptualizations will become pure. You'll no longer conceptualize of people as bad or good. You'll conceptualize of them wisely as people who act out of ignorance, for example. Don't try and convince yourself of what people are like. Work deeper than that on the ultimate level that doesn't have anything to do with people. If we have a song in our mind, how do we note this without increasing the desire to listen to music? How does this relate to guarding the sense doors? Well, guarding the sense doors um, manually, um, externally, uh, using the body, right? By uh, segregating your, yourself physically from the sound is, is just a brute force method. I mean, it's a stopgap measure. It works 
or it helps temporarily, but it doesn't solve the problem. We're, we're okay with having a desire to listen to music uh, as, as a start. Our goal is not to force ourselves not to want to listen to music, it's to note the wanting, to see the wanting clearly and eventually to be able to just see the see to, to experience the hearing without giving rise to desire. So if you can say to yourself, hearing, hearing, you'll free yourself from the potential desire, but that's only momentary and sometimes you're still gonna want you're still going to desire and like the music. And when that happens, you'll just say to yourself, liking, liking. And so by creating these moments of clarity, it disrupts that habitual process of liking and wanting the music. And over time, that changes our habits. It changes our behavior. It just takes time and effort. And the clarity brings wisdom, which helps to promote healthy reactions and responses to things so it's a different level of guarding the senses guarding through mindfulness is a higher level than guarding through physically uh, removing yourself from the music and so there's the question how can you do it if it's in your mind right you, you obviously can't physically uh, re remove yourself from music that's a that's a limitation of the physical Say uh, removal or the physical guarding. It's a different kind of guarding. Use mindfulness to guard, and then eventually wisdom is what guards you. Once you see clearly, the wisdom guards you automatically. You just see it clearly for what it is. So there's no potential for arising of wanting or liking. How could one note the resolute renouncing of a pleasure, having chocolate in front of you and deciding, resolving, let's not? What causes this renouncing attitude? Is it possible to cultivate it? Yeah, so that's really just conceptual. The, the, the eating of chocolate is a conceptual reality. It's not reality. In reality, there's no eating of chocolate. There's only the experience of seeing Hearing, well, see, let's, what's important, you're seeing, smelling, I guess. Do you smell chocolate? Seeing, tasting, and thinking. And then the liking. There's these experiences, the liking and the wanting. And then the resolution to, to not. Now that resolution is a mental uh, decision-making. The... Um, So the reality is those experiences, and by cultivating mindfulness, the decision-making changes. So in our mind there is this decision-making based on the conceptualization of the chocolate. Should I eat it? Shouldn't I eat it? And when, you, when the liking wins out, the wanting wins out, then there is the I should eat it. When there is the perhaps the clarity or even the aversion towards your or the guilt feeling can cause you to renounce it even though you want it 
but um, the, the the most stable and lasting and substantial way of mean means of renouncing the chocolate is wisdom, is clarity. It's not wisdom through intellect, knowing that the chocolate's bad for you. It's just about experiencing the memories of chocolate, the liking of the chocolate, the seeing of the chocolate, and through the clarity, freeing yourself from the craving, from the desire. Then the let's not or the let's isn't so important. You might eat the chocolate, you might not, but there's no attachment to it through the clarity and objectivity of mindfulness. Does meditation cause different change in different people? I find myself laughing at life more because so many things are overreacted to. Is this a sign that my practice could be proper? No. I mean, not not exactly. Like, It's a sign that you're doing something right. But, but there's, I, I, I say no, not exactly, because... Your practice doesn't exist. Don't get in the idea that your practice is a thing. It's not a backpack you carry around with you or a vehicle that you sit in. Practice is something you do momentarily. And because of the moments of actual clarity and practice, you're going to see good positive results from time to time. So it's a sign that you're doing something right or that you've done some things right at certain moments. But your practice is much more complicated than that. And so laughing, why you laugh, there's lots of reasons, lots of causes that are working together to create that laughter. Some of them might be the clarity that you're noticing, but some of them might be your propensity to laugh your propensity to react to things you find absurd. And uh, there, are, there are wholesome aspects to that and possibly unwholesome aspects to that. So don't, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue where meditators will uh, overestimate experiences, give, give things more significance than they deserve. Nothing should be given any significance beyond what it actually is. What does laughter signify? It signifies the causes leading to laughter. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It's an experience that you should try to be mindful of. And if you can be mindful of, you'll see it clearly. You know, I mean, you won't have any concern or doubt or uncertainty about it. How can I use the Buddha's teachings and meditation to overcome my chewing tobacco addiction? Well, if you're interested, I think this is a question that could be answered by asking you to consider reading our booklet. There are some teachings in there that can help you sort of deconstruct what you call a tobacco addiction. Because the tobacco addiction is just the conceptual describing of what's going on. What's actually going on is moments of experience with habits and physical and mental aspects of the habit. So learning about those and trying to see them more clearly will help you to break it down and free yourself from some of the bad habits that cultivate uh, the addiction.
you want, you can sign up for an at-home meditation course. Even there's the link to that as well. Lately, when I meditate, after I concentrate very well and follow my breath, a feeling of heaviness and solidity comes over my whole body, and I feel incredible equanimity. Is this a jhana state? It's hard for me to confirm or deny that. I mean, it sounds pretty much like what a jhana state might be like, but it really depends. Jhana depends who you ask about it. If you ask me about what that state is, I would tell you it's a feeling of heaviness and solidity, and it's a feeling of equanimity. And those feelings are going to arise and cease, and you should try to see them clearly as they are. Uh, after you concentrate very well and follow your breath, well, it sounds like you're actually doing, probably doing a meditation different from what I teach, so I can't really advise you beyond that. I suggest if you're interested in my answers to such questions, uh, you could read our booklet and try to take up the meditation practice that I teach, because it will help you to understand a way of uh, working with those feelings and experiences. How to deal with a persistent fight-or-flight response felt ceaselessly for more than two years without known cause, even after meditation. So try to look at dealing with it. Take that word at face value. Or instead of trying to fix it or get rid of it, change it, solve it, you learn to deal with it. Quite likely, after, your, your, your phraseology here is, because of after two years you realize it's a it, you're not up to the task of changing it, fixing it, controlling it, uh, dismissing it. So you've come to ask me this question after two years of frustration, perhaps, or as after some time probably of frustration in trying to fix it. And so now instead of asking me how to fix it, you're asking someone how to deal with it, which is a good question. I think it's much more to the point. Once you realize that things are not under our control and we aren't able to just fix our problems and change our emotions, uh, then we can do the real work of uh, letting them go, letting letting them come and letting them go, letting them uh, letting them continue without our engagement because it's really our engagement that feeds them, right? So to become independent of them, that's our goal. So fight or flight. Fight or flight isn't, um, it isn't actually a state. Sometimes we fight, sometimes we, we, we run away. But there's a decision-making that goes on, whether we're going to do one or the other. It just comes from a reaction. We react negatively to something. Something's wrong, I've got to fix it. And it's that that you have to change. You're thinking about the situation rather than trying to fix situations. Try and experience them as experiences rather than fixing problems. Try to understand your experiences to see them clearly. So I don't know if you're practicing the meditation that we practice, the meditation that I was teaching at the beginning of this session or 
and teach in the booklet and uh, through our courses. But if you are the uh, my my um, advice is to create create this perspective, encourage this perspective of not trying to fix or change things, not trying to fix even your need to fix or change things. Try to just see your experiences, whatever experiences arise as they are. Remind yourself, this is this. Keep yourself focused on the reality of the experience so that your mind doesn't have the opportunity to follow after its judgments and reactions. If you haven't read our booklet or started this practice, well, consider trying that. But don't be concerned when things persist. There's no shortcut. Only through clarity will they slowly, slowly die out as new habits of clarity and objectivity replace them. I had a vivid dream that I was angry at my mom and shouting at her. I used to be angry at her, but I accepted her long time ago and did the internal work. Could it be that the emotions are still repressed? So there's no place for an emotion to be repressed. Emotions arise and cease. Um, what you have is the propensity or the, the potential to get angry. If you got angry in a dream, it means you still have that potential to get angry. It's not a huge cause for concern. Of course, the potential to get angry is, is dangerous, but it's deep-seated. And because in your mind you're not as in, in um, possession of your mental faculties, you're often not able to put together the logic that allows that reminds you that um, you don't have a problem with your mother. It create it 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 creates a sort of a chaotic um, meaning making and connection. It makes connections where there aren't actually connections in 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 sleep because your mind is not clearly aware. And so strange things can happen. But when and if you do get angry at whatever crazy thing happens in your dream, uh, it's just a sign that you still have the potential to get angry. It's not a sign that you have a problem with your mom, and it's certainly not a sign that there's some anger towards your mom that's repressed. Your mind is just bringing up memories that trigger that potential to get angry. And you know, without the full picture that your waking mind has, it, it can take the form of getting angry at your mom, even though that's ridiculous because you have a good relationship with your mom. It's it's not something to be concerned about specifically. It's just something to be concerned about generally. Dreams are just like that. They're chaotic and unpredictable, and your mind is not... You're not in your right mind when you're dreaming. But uh, if you had removed the potential to get angry, you still wouldn't get angry at anything in your dream. So that's something to understand. just means you have more work to do. Where is the line drawn between fighting drowsiness as a hindrance and falling asleep? 
So we we only fight drowsiness as a hindrance to a certain extent. We don't we don't rely on fighting our hindrances. There are ways to mitigate your hindrances. Drowsiness you'd mitigate it by standing up, splashing water on your face, do some chanting, etc. You can you can mitigate it to some extent. And sometimes that's really helpful. Um, but ultimately, the practice isn't about fighting it. It's about being mindful of it. So when you are drowsy, you try and see it as it is. And that can sometimes put you to sleep. So the the, the question might be, I'm not sure if this is what you meant to say, the question might be, what's the line between <clears throat> uh, between being objective about the drowsiness and falling asleep. And that line is hard to find because sometimes you, through noting you will fall asleep. You've crossed the line. You're no longer mindful. You're, just, you're no longer accepting it. You're, well, you're no longer acknowledging it. You're accepting it and you're, you're going with it. Uh, that's a line that's hard to find. But that's not such a big deal. If you fall asleep, then when you wake up, just be mind, try and be mindful again. And as you become more... Uh, predisposed to be mindful, you'll find a, a greater amount of energy. You'll find yourself becoming less stressed. As a result, you're less fatigued, less drowsy, and more balanced. That takes some time. In the beginning, it's quite common for a meditator to become drowsy and even fall asleep during meditation. Just look at it as a part of your training. Eventually, you'll overcome that. You don't need any artificial aids, just patience and perseverance. What is a good way to deal with boredom? I find that boredom leads me to do things that I know are wrong. Mm -hmm. Thinking lustful thoughts, negative thoughts, etc. Yeah, How should I address being bored? Boredom is dangerous in that way. It's a catalyst. When you're bored, you, things that you normally wouldn't do are, are activated. You don't really want that thing, but you're bored, so, oh well nothing better to do it, it, it augments our uh, other emotions you have to be vigilant with that one because it's a real shame when emotions that wouldn't normally be able to overwhelm you are allowed to overwhelm you through through boredom right that's a, a, a specific danger to boredom that you've identified it's a shame because you're not that weak, right? You might have lustful thoughts, but it's okay. You know, but then you get bored and you think, eh, nothing better to do. And you're, you're, those, those weak, lustful thoughts suddenly take on strength through the boredom. Boredom is just another object of meditation. It makes it uh, a very important target for mindfulness. It's quite simple. You just say to yourself, bored, bored. Don't try and distract yourself. See, boredom, one real mistake that we make is trying to divert our attention. It's okay, I'll find something else to do. Replace one bad habit with another bad habit. I used to like to do this, now I can't do it, I'm bored, I'll do this instead. That'll make me enjoy, that'll remove my boredom. Real bad idea. That doesn't help. It just makes you more susceptible to boredom. You give in to it. You give it power. Try and face the boredom. See the boredom. 
say to yourself, bored, bored. It's quite exciting, actually. Boredom itself is quite exciting. My colleagues keep asking about learning mindfulness. They won't read the booklet, but want something to be organized for them. I don't feel they respect Buddhism, so I'm not sure how to approach this. Can you offer any advice? Hmm. Well, there, there's not just one way to, um, to share the teachings. Um, so try and work something out with them. If they want something to be organized, then organize something. Give a talk on it. You read the booklet, I guess, then uh, relate to them what you read. If that's what they want. They don't need respect. You don't. I mean, what they need is is respect. As a attitude, so they don't have to respect Buddhism per se. They have to be respectful. Meaning, if it's a person who is not by nature respectful, I would probably not feel inclined to help them. If it's a person who is by nature disrespectful, and that's nothing to do with Buddhism. They're just not very, uh, I mean, respectful isn't even, it's just a, a, respectful is a symptom. If a person is respectful, it's just a sign that their mind is in, in a good place, a wholesome place. But if they're a person who is like teasing you about your meditation and saying, yeah, why, you know, as, as a sort of a joke, saying that maybe I should learn mindfulness, which is maybe part of the sense you're getting that these people are not very serious about their intention and just let it go but if they really seem interested in it if they're really sincere but, but, but try and be sure that they're sincere you know don't don't not obsessed not not worried about it or anything but if it really feels like they're not interested don't push them you know you can say if you're really interested then i can give a talk let's organize a talk and i'll just describe to you what's in the booklet if that works better for them be, be, be flexible. Flexible, but not, what is it, bend, but don't break. Breaking would be giving in to their silliness if there's just a joke or a whim or something like that. If they come drunk, no. If they say, can we meditate and do drugs as well? Will you? We're going to come, but we want to get, get high first or something like that. I, I assume that's probably not a problem. But you understand. If they're not taking it seriously, then just ignore it. But if they're serious, you know, you tell them to put their put their time where their mouth is. If they really if they really want it, okay, I'll give you a talk. If that's what you want, and then you give them a talk. Don't worry about being experienced. Just you know what's in in the booklet. You know what the Buddha taught. You've done some meditation yourself, I guess. Maybe the best thing I could say is if you haven't done an at-home course, do that. If you haven't done an intensive course, consider to find a way to do that. You know, help yourself. And when you've gained something substantial from the practice, then you'll be in a much better place to share it with others in whatever way.
How can I be more mindful in the way I speak? I talk all the time without meaning sometimes. Let's just practice. No, it, it isn't actually about the speech. It's about the state, the quality of your mind. Like so many other things, it's not uh, about the speech. It's about where the speech comes from. Speech. Uh, there's, a, there's a jataka that's quite apt in this regard. That's uh, a jataka story. Jatakas are past life stories of the Buddha. And the Buddha was once, I think, a wise man in a village, just observing what happened. And there was this merchant who came to a town with a donkey. And he wasn't a merchant. He was a thief, I think. He was a thief. And what was he doing? I think he was stealing people's vegetables or something in the garden. Oh, no, 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 he was, that's right. He was a merchant, but he wanted to feed his donkey. And so in order to feed his donkey, he would put it in farmers' fields to eat all their crops. And he covered it with a lion skin. Out in the middle of the field, he put a lion hide over it. And when people saw it, they, they thought it was a lion out in their field. And so they, uh, like, I guess it was a high field of wheat, and all they could see was the lion's back and mane. And so they were scared. They didn't want to go near it. And uh, so the donkey would happily and in peace eat all of the farmer's crops while the merchant was off selling his wares. Until one day the the... The donkey, they did this, and the donkey saw all these people watching it in fear from, from the edge of the fields and uh, kind of got excited about all the attention and started braying. And, so, and when, they, when the people heard this braying, they said, That's not a lion, that's a donkey. And they shot it and killed it. Simple story. But the moral of the story, the, the, the bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, was watching this and he said, that's, that's how it is. If the donkey had just kept its mouth shut, and he said, the fool is like that as well. Though you know a fool when they open their mouth, because what comes out of it is all just donkey brain. He told this, the Buddha told this story in relation to a monk who just usually just pretended to be wise, but then he was asked to give a talk, I think, and he couldn't give a talk because he was just a donkey. I mean, he was just a foolish monk. So his pretending to be a wise monk was, uh, it worked until he actually opened his mouth and tried to talk. So I bring this, the relation to your question is that our speech comes from the quality of our mind. And what you need to work on is the quality of your mind so that you're not a donkey. And then whatever you do speak can come out as a lion's roar. Because you're a lion. Could you explain what vipassana meditation is? How do we practice this meditation correctly? As I know, Every other meditation gives us temporary benefits without helping us understand our mind. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I guess I would just direct you to our meditation booklet. I wrote a booklet on basically the answer to that question. So can recommend you to read that booklet. If you're really interested in a hands-on approach, you can take our at-home course. We have links in the description of the video. I've noticed that my emotions are not as intense anymore, be it anger, liking, and sometimes fear. The emotions feel very light. Is this cause of the detachment? Because of the attachment, right? It's written um, as cause. Yeah, but probably is this because of the attachment? Because it's not a cause that leads to detachment. It's, it's yeah, the cause of it is detachment. I mean, most likely. That sounds like I assume... What you're not saying is that you've been practicing meditation. Hopefully you've been practicing our meditation. We can take credit for it. Or whatever you've been practicing, whatever type of meditation you're practicing, well, I'd imagine that that technique has deserves some credit, whatever it might be. Uh, if, if you haven't been practicing meditation, then I don't know what the cause might be. Uh, because, of course, it's, un I, I, it's unpredictable. I don't know your situation. Um, there's lots of reasons why that might happen. Our, our emotions sometimes come in cycles, so at times we just naturally are less reactionary, less intensely emotional than other times. Uh, that can happen in many different com complex cycles. So don't take that as sure proof that based on whatever it is that you're doing to cause it, that, that you're successful. You just become aware of your state now and keep going. One thing I always remind people of is to not look to the results of your practice for proof that it's working. Look to the quality of your practice as proof that what you're doing is right. Because the actual nature of being mindful is perfect. It's, it's pure. And so you have no reason to doubt that that purity is perfect for you, is the right thing for you. That's what you have to remind yourself. It's hard to see that sometimes, even though you do experience the purity, the clarity at certain times, at certain moments. Try and focus on that. When you have that, you, you should be full of confidence that you're in the right way. You've, you've found it. You've found the, the truth. You've found the path. You found what is right, and it's not in your results. It's in your reality, your actions, your experience. I react to aversion with sleepiness, and sleepiness seems a huge habit, so mindfulness at the moment is not enough to be effective. What could trigger a wholesome chain reaction? What is a good habit to build? Well, huge habits are just harder to to reprogram. They're not categorically different. There's not a point at which it becomes so huge that mindfulness is not enough to be effective. It's just that mindfulness in one moment is not going to be enough. You need many moments and many days and weeks and months and years, perhaps, to fully overcome 
the problems. Don't try and solve things. We're not here to solve things. We're here to see things clearly. We're here to become familiar with reality. We're here to um, understand things. So your description of this experience is a good sign. It's a sign that you've started to see clearly how your mind works, that you react to aversion with sleepiness, that sleepiness uh, it doesn't go away just because you're mindful. So trying, asking questions about how to, not quite what you're asking, but so, so your, your questions are good, but if your intention in asking them is to find a way to fix the problem, that intention is going to be problematic. So the wholesome, whatever, chain reaction, a good habit, is probably in many ways what you're already doing. Because what you're doing has at least helped you see the, the, this process isn't under your control. That mindfulness isn't a magic tool that somehow is going to fix your problems. That's not what it's for. The clarity that comes, that's coming already, is going to help you let go of things like aversion. So you won't even get averse in the first place. And then by your own admission, there would be no sleepiness. Or, I mean, that, that source of sleep, sleepiness would be removed. But also sleepiness. You know, sleepiness is counteracted by mindfulness. It's just if the sleepiness is very powerful, a uh, powerful habit or tendency, and there's lots of other uh, contributing causes like overeating, um, well, physical, the physiology, uh, brain patterns, lots of reasons. Uh, it can be work stress that makes you sleepy as well. There's many contributing factors. The mindfulness won't stop you from, from getting sleepy and falling asleep, and that's okay. That's not the point. Mindfulness helps you to see more clearly. That's the point. As you see more clearly, you'll develop better habits. You should find yourself less sleepy over time, but more importantly, less reactionary. And really, more importantly, less averse. I mean, that's the bigger problem. Sleepiness has many causes, but aversion only has one real cause, and that's ignorance and delusion. Do you teach the stages of insight as described by Mahasi Sayadaw? Is this something we should study? I do. If people have done intensive courses, I'll go over them. It's one part of uh, the teacher's course. We have an instructor, an instructor course whereby someone could learn the basics of how to lead another person through an intensive course. And there we would really focus on the stages. The stages are much more useful for a teacher. They're, they're somewhat useful for an advanced student. I mean, they're very useful for a person who has done many courses in this sort of meditation, many intensive courses in this sort of meditation. For a new meditator or even... What do you call a, a middle-level meditator? I still shy away from putting too much emphasis on that sort of study. They can become a real hindrance. They can actually get in the way and inhibit your progress as you obsess over them. Uh, sometimes people get widely distorted views of of the the stages. I've had students telling me what stage they're in when quite clearly they're just caught up in their own mental delusion. So you don't want to fall into that. 
don't focus on the stages as a student. It's really not in your best interest. Today we've crossed the hour. We have five more questions prepared in Tier 1. Do you right. have time to answer? Go for it. How do I do intensive meditation? Can I do it without guidance? I wouldn't. I mean, once it becomes intensive, you really should have a guide. The worst, the, the most likely thing that comes is you'll just give it up. You'll find it something that's beyond your ability because psychologically having a teacher is just better. It's just more encouraging, more sustainable. Not to mention how much more uh, on track you will be with the help of a teacher. How harder it is, how easier it is to get off track without a teacher. So I would recommend finding someone who can guide you through an intensive course if you've never done it before. I mean, doing it by yourself can be, depending on the sort of person you are, of course it can be helpful. Uh, if you're going by a guide like our booklet, then it's probably not dangerous. Probably not. I mean, it can be. Anything that you that that involves mental development can be dangerous if you get on the wrong track and conceive of it wrongly. It's like a knife. If you grab it by the blade, it will cut you. Make sure you have a good grasp of the practice before you intend to before you undertake to do intensive practice. I've been doing laying meditation for about a year, and even during that time I tried sitting but just ended up doing laying, and I've continued even until now? Is this okay, or should I persist to sit? Sitting's generally better. I would recommend walking and sitting. That's what the Buddha recommended. Lying, there's nothing wrong with lying meditation, but the sign, the, the, what you're describing is a sign of perhaps a, a lack of, of uh, energy, which can be helped by changing your postures. Relying on lying meditation does have its disadvantages for the development of energy. So I'd recommend trying walking. If you do walking first and then sitting, it will probably be a lot less pleasant, but you'll find the walking really helps you do sitting after. Most people are only focused on one posture, and that's uh, hard to maintain and, and less beneficial, in my opinion. And the Buddha's opinion as well. His description of uh, intensive meditation was walking and sitting in alternation. Practice to me is quite tough, challenging not to give up. I tried to search what causes effort, but I didn't get the fourfold definition of right effort. Could you explain it related to practicing? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. The fourfold right effort is pretty simple. I mean, I wouldn't read too much into it. It's just describing different aspects of wrong practice. And so your effort is to try and avoid wrong practice. So wrong practice would be, according to the fourfold effort, the wrongfold practice, wrong practice that you're avoiding is um, letting unwholesome states arise, letting arisen wholesome states persist, not developing wholesome states, not um, supporting 
wholesome states that have already arisen. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing really practical about it. It's just a reminder of what right effort is. Right effort isn't energetic in what you're doing. Right effort is the effort to create objectivity, to to create clarity, and to maintain clarity. Right? There's the creation of wholesome states and the maintaining of wholesome states. Uh, it involves vigilance, uh, so that when a wholesome state has arisen, you you protect it. Or when an unwholesome state arises, you cut it off before it can persist once it's... Or when a state arises that would give rise to unwholesomeness, you cut it off before the unwholesomeness even arises. Really, it's describing a... Um, a dedication is the word I'm looking for. A dedication to mindfulness. When you're dedicated to creating the clarity of mind, of noticing things, of, of seeing things as they are, that dedication is the effort. So the point is that effort is not effort for effort's sake. It's um, effort, the effort taken to be, the effort, effort required to be mindful. Now, that's different, to some extent, that's different from practice being tough challenging not to give up because you don't use effort to remove the desire to give up per se you use mindfulness you use the effort to be mindful of that state that is making it tough because practice isn't tough practice isn't even real what's real is your experiences and quite often our experiences are obsessed with the conceptual idea of practicing and when you're focused on that conceptual idea of meditation practice Yes, it can be quite it can it can become a source of negativity that makes it tough. So any thought of meditation becomes a negative one, a, a thought associated with aversion. And well that's fine. I mean that's that's a it's unfortunate, but it's not a problem until you ignore it, right? And without effort you're going to ignore it. So the effort is to focus on that aversion to meditation, for example, that aversion to anything. And when you focus on that with, with mindfulness, uh, you'll you'll find that there is no you know there is no such thing as the meditation. There is no problem, and you're able to be mindful quite easily when you focus on what it is that is preventing you from being mindful of other things. Focus on the aversion. When we say, note the state until it goes away, how long do we mean by until it goes away? Can it last for a few minutes? Can you say bored, bored, etc. for many minutes? Yeah, emotions like boredom won't last for many minutes if you're truly mindful. They might come and go and come and go, but because mindfulness and, and boredom can't exist in the same mind state, once you actually evoke the clarity of mind related to mindfulness and sampajanya, the clarity of of awareness. Uh, there, there can there can, can't be boredom in that moment, but boredom might come back. 
what we do normally is when the boredom goes away, we go back to the rising and falling. And if it comes back, we go back and note it again. Some other things persist, like pain is pretty persistent sometimes. But even that should go away once you cultivate the ability to be quite mindful. Uh, if after a, quite some time, it feels like you've been noting for quite some time, you don't have to count minutes or anything. Once your mind has kind of had enough of it and you're no longer distracted by it, then you can just go back to the rising and falling. But try and note, if things do persist, try and note it for some time. But how, what do we mean by until it goes away? It's not an amount of time. It has to do with it actually going away. Right? So there's no time limit. It's not like one minute and then you stop because it, that's how long it takes for something to go away. No, you don't know when it's going to go away. Just stay with it until it does. Or until after some time it just isn't going away. Is it important to relax the body when meditating? No. No, it's actually quite interesting to us to be mindful of the stress in the body. Because the desire to relax, placing importance on relaxing, that's all going to get in your way. That's about that that's the bias. I mean that, that leads to bias, encourages bias. When you're not relaxed, something's wrong, right? Better to be relaxed than to be to be tense. And and that mind state is actually going to be a problem for you. You you cultivate that, you're going to create Neurosis, neurosis, the neurotic obsession to be relaxed, which isn't going to help you relax. It's going to make you more stressed. No, the real way to be relaxed is to not need to relax, not even mentally. Even when you are anxious mentally, not don't need to be free from that anxiety. What you need is to see that anxiety for what it is. Observe it. Admit it. Acknowledge it and become independent of it, so that you're no longer feeding it. Thank you for answering our questions, Bhante. Thank you for your help, Chris. And thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Ulu and uh, Rahid, for your help as well. Wish you all a good week, and in general, peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.